0: I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. This is a podcast for what we call Mind Discipleship. It's a podcast for those who wanna set their minds on things above. That's where the name of the podcast comes from, from Colossians 3, one and two, where Paul encourages us to set our minds on things above. Setting our minds on good, beautiful, and true thoughts on uplifting, encouraging, life-giving, biblically-based thoughts from above is not easy. And that is why we do this podcast provide for you in each episode a thought from above that you can dwell upon so that your heart will be warmed and you will become an epiphany of grace. My guest today is Brian Zond. He's been on this podcast before, phenomenal writer, speaker, teacher, privileged to call him my friend. He is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, St. Joe Mo. He's known for his theologically informed preaching and his embrace of the deep and long history of the church. Brian provides a forum for pastors to engage with leading theologian as a frequent conference speaker, notably at the Apprentice Gathering. He, he gave one of the best talks ever at the Apprentice Gathering, and he will be back this coming September 2024 at the next Apprentice Gathering. So, so glad to have him on. He's the author of several books that I love, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Beauty Will Save the World, and a new book we're going to talk about today, which is The Wood Between Two Worlds, A Poetic Theology of the Cross. I'm so excited to talk about it. I'm so glad you're here. Brian, welcome back.
1: Well, thank you, Jim. It's good to be with you.
0: Always good to be with you. You know, I, I have a picture that pops up now and again. It's a picture of you and I. We're at the Spiritual Life Center. It's a Catholic retreat center here in Wichita, and they have that life-size mm-hmm. um, statues of the wedding at Cana. I remember that. There's a that. picture of you and I, and we're being photobombed by Jesus. And I just, <laughs> I love, <laughs>
1: well, every time I, I look at that
0: picture, I smile. Yeah, I
1: love that whole, I love that Statue. If I remember right, it's a series of statues, right? There's more than just one.
0: Yeah, it's there's about of, ten little statues. It's it's depicting the wedding at Cana.
1: Well, and exactly. So, and it, yeah. you know, in my my somewhat little spiritual memoir, if you want to call it that, you know, it's called Water to Wine. And so I've right. I just always loved that John two Water to Wine story. It's probably my favorite Jesus miracle story, and so. Yeah, so when I participated in that, I don't know what you called it, a retreat or what you called it, but um, at that Catholic retreat center, right, I, right. I, I really enjoyed seeing that. I've thought about that many times. I thought, man, I, we should have one of those at Word of Life Church. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to get
0: you back. We'll get you back doing it again. I'm excited for that. But Brian, my goodness, The Wood Between the Worlds. I mean, it is, I think it might be your best book. I don't want to go out on a limb because I love all your books but my goodness, it's so good. So we'll start off with an easy question I ask everybody on this podcast who's written a book, which is, why did you write this book?
1: I wrote this book, I think it, I think it's maybe easier to tell you. Yeah, I just tell you the story, and I refer to the story in some other books, but, you know, it's what it is. Uh, one of the defining moments of my spiritual life um, it's fairly recent. It it goes back to 2016 when my wife and I, Perry, for the first time walked the Camino de Santiago. This is a 500-mile pilgrimage that the traditional Frances route begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, and then 500 miles later you arrive in Santiago de Compostela. And that, I won't spend any time on this, but it, it transformed us. It really did. It just brought a a depth of peace and wholeness and well-being and healing into our soul over that 40 days 500 miles but the first day you know you, you walk from Saint Jean in France across the Pyrenees and 15 miles later it's a long hard day you arrive at Roncesvalles um, and everybody stays in the same place because there's really only one place to stay there's this large monastery that can you know that can accommodate literally hundreds of pilgrims, and so everybody stays there. And I had gone into their chapel, and I was just sitting in there praying, I, you know, this Catholic monastery, and I see the crucifix in the chapel there. And, and I felt like, and I'm, you know me, Jim, I'm not an over-the-top God-told-me-God-told-me-God-told-me guy, although I do believe the living God does speak to us. Mm-hmm. But it was one of those moments where I really felt like I heard from the Spirit, And I felt like the Spirit was giving me some directions for what was going to turn out to be a 40-day walk. And it was this, go into every church you can, find the crucifix, pay attention to it, ask this question, what does this mean, and don't be too quick to give an answer. Hmm. And so that's what I did. And of course, you know, you're walking on this the Camino de Santiago, there's lots of churches. You know, some of them are no longer functioning, some of them are in ruins, some of them are vibrant, but Perry and I, we 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 went in every church we could. They weren't all open, but we went in every one we could. And, um, you know, if, if it's in the middle of our walk that day, we might not stay long. If it was at the end of the day, we might stay there an hour. And so, for me it was it was 500 miles 40 days of crucifixes and because I'm on the move I'm not seeing the same one I'm seeing a different one every day a different depiction of Christ crucified and that law, that experience lodged deep within me and it's really from that experience that I've written more than I mean it, it's shown up in every book I've written probably since then but this was the book where I decided okay I'm going to just solely focus on, I'm going to lean into that. So I felt like the Spirit said, ask this question as you look upon Christ crucified. What does this mean? But don't be too quick to give an answer. Well, now it's, you know, seven years later. And now I think seven years is not quick. (laughs) And so now I'm beginning to try to set forth some of the meanings. And I stress that I put it in the plural some of the meanings. Of Christ crucified, not the meaning. There is there isn't a single meaning. That's a problem that we get into in theology when we want to reduce the cross of Christ to one thing. So, anyway, that's that's a probably a longer answer than you were looking for.
0: No, no, and you and you write about that in the book. And I know that the the Camino has been huge for you, and I had a couple other friends who've done it as well. And I know it's very profound. Um, but I, I just. Uh, the cross is so central as you write about in the book it's sen- it's the center of our faith and the cross and the resurrection which you say don't separate those right but right. when um, i
1: say the cross of christ the resurrection should be assumed in this conversation exactly right but but you know because it is the
0: center um you know how do we understand it and there's a lot of misunderstandings about it and um as usual you do phenomenal work on helping correct what I would refer to as, as false narratives about what's mm-hmm. happening on the cross. We'll talk about that. But it looks like the title, The Wood Between the Worlds, comes from, I had to do a little research here, a 1978 album by Bob a. Ayala. Am I saying that right?
1: You, yes, you are saying that right. I, I wouldn't listen uh, to some of it. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yes, I stole it from Bob Ayala, who stole it from C.S. Lewis, who stole, stole it from a uh, like an 18th century novelist whose name I have forgotten. All the good, all the best stuff is just, well, let's say it this way: passed along, <laughs> passed along,
0: <laughs> recycled.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Yeah, uh, you're, I, I wonder. I'll do a lot of these podcasts related to this book. I'm. I don't think anyone else will mention Baba Yaga. But so, <laughs> so, so
0: So, kudos to you. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks That's for a the information. Album
1: and. It's in fact, I I looked as recent as re- recently as today. It is not on Spotify. Uh, I don't think it's on any streaming service. Hmm. I have the, <laughs> I still have the vinyl. You know, I can listen to it on vinyl, but, but I don't yeah. think that's available. I mean, it wasn't like a well-known album or anything. But yeah, yeah. that's kind of the Bob Bennett era almost. Do you remember Bob Bennett? Yes, remember? I do.
0: Kind of was I was as, well, as I fact, was looking the, at it, the, the epigraph sound.
1: for this book. There's blood on the wood between the worlds. Yeah. Baba Yala. Yeah. So, so that, that was a little a tip of my hat that, yes, that was the original source. But of course, it's, it's a C.S. Lewis phrase, although not in reference to the cross. It's, it's in the Chronicles of Narnia, mm-hmm. where a, there's a literal wood. Yeah. You know, these, these woods where there's these pools that serve as portals to various worlds throughout Narnia or I guess Narnia is one of the worlds I can't remember how, exactly how that works but right yeah
0: yeah that's oh man but it's it's I uh, uh, yeah and uh, and since since then I've just been kind of haunted in a good way by how it is the wood between the worlds right the but the realms and so forth um you, you use the metaphor of a kaleidoscope
1: mm-hmm. to
0: understand the meaning of the cross and you also talk about how when prose doesn't work, we go to poetry. When that doesn't work, we go to music and so forth. But I love that the idea of the kaleidoscope. But talk about why, why do we need more than one way to understand the cross?
1: Well, because I think there are there, there's more than one understanding to be had. If, when looking at the cross, we are seeing the single greatest revelation of who God is— then to reduce who God is to one thing, one sentence, one statement, one emphasis, seems to me to be a very, very poor theology. Being Hmm. disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. But isn't that infinite? I mean... Mm-hmm. I mean, to use another theological phrase, once we gain the beatific vision, is it all over? Are we done? Oh, okay. Oh, all right. I understand God now. Now I'm glad we got that cleared up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or rather, is it that God is infinite in His glory and His beauty? I think in the book, I re- this is in the very beginning of the book, I talk about those mysterious angelic beings in the book of Revelation who cease not day and night to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Well, how do we imagine these angelic beings? Are they, you know, automatons that are just put on infinite repeat? They have the most boring job in the universe. They have to say (laughs) the same thing over and over and over. Or is it rather that that? Every moment is an exclamation that is just that erupts from them as they behold the glory of God, and then they're given another glimpse, and then another one, and then another one. <laughs> and so, I think the cross is like that in that there may be no end to the depth of revelation about the nature of God to be found there. And so, this book is 19 chapters, and then a poem at the end um so you could say 20 if you think about a kaleidoscope it's like 20 turns of the kaleidoscope but i don't want to suggest to anybody oh okay bz has settled it the cross means these 20 things (laughs) no these are just 20 glimpses i had and i'm sure there's hundreds and thousands maybe infinitely there's ways of looking at the meaning of the cross
0: yeah and, and and it's it's so good i mean it you're picking up on some of the, the really central themes for me. And, um, you know, as I was reading the book, I was thinking, of course, I, I've got to read it because he's going to be on the podcast. <laughs> but I also, I kept going, no, I don't want to read this fast. I want to savor this. I want to lean into it. I'm sure I'm going to reread it um, several times because it's, it, there's just, well, just like you say, the cross, there's so much in it, but the the book has so much in it. And Gosh, I have so many questions, so I'm, I'm going to keep going.
1: Okay. So
0: here we all go. Right. So our, the great Dallas Willard, um, I, one time he said in a class, um, which kind of shocked me. I remember the first time he said it, but he said, the cross of Christ is the most recognized symbol in the world, and we need to ask why. Hmm. And, and you essentially say the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I say you,
1: something very similar. Very
0: similar. You talk about how there's there's billions of crosses across the globe and how the story of a man on a cross is the most depicted story of all time and the most de- depicted subject in art and you say the same thing which is we need to ask why so why well uh, yeah well, <laughs> there's the book is what, this is this is
1: what the book's about but yeah. I, I, I don't want to leave that point yet because we can become i think uh numb to it we become accustomed to it let's just take a moment let's just think anthropologically and 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 it might even help to um to imagine yourself as a space alien, which I actually refer to in yeah. the book. Uh, so, That's so when you, you cuss no in the background. book, right? Hmm? You actually cussed in the book, I think, but, when you well, I, I no I didn't, but <laughs> but I let you imagine what the cartoon Okay, let, let's let me back up. Let me and I'll I'll get to that. So the most depicted story image in the history of human art is a depiction of a naked man nailed to a tree. <laughs> now, that shit, we're, we're accustomed to that. We're used to it. We, oh, yeah, it's right. a crucifix. But imagine yourself, so I saw this cartoon one time, and it's it's uh, space aliens have landed. There's two of them. They've gotten out of their flying saucer. They happen to have landed near one of these life-size roadside crucifixes. <laughs> And uh, like you see in Spain. And so so there, there's a life-size crucifix that the aliens have landed right there. They've got out of their space, their flying saucer. They're standing in front of this crucifix, and one says to the other, you know what we need to do? We need to get the F out of here. That's what we need to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> which which part of the absurd humor is really highlighting the fact that this should be shocking to us. Right. And so I would say, among other things that these space aliens may have deduced is this is not a safe place. <laughs> You're right. And they're not wrong. And so the first thing I want to do in the book, I think, is try to recover the scandal. Trying to recover the fact that, that as, as Fleming Rutledge says, I quote her, I don't know if I can get this exact quote, though. She says uh, the, the cross of Jesus Christ is like the most irreligious object ever to appear. The, the fact of the matter is it is not something that you would necessarily imagine becoming a religious image. And yet it's you know the most recognizable religious image in human history. That, that, that should at least provoke us to, to wonder about this a little bit.
0: Yeah, for okay. sure. I'm, yeah, absolutely. I, well, I mean, it is. I know when Dallas said that question and he just kind of let it hang in the air, it, it made me and I think the rest of the people who are listening in that class just ask that question. Well, how can this possibly be that, you know, there's the golden arches, there's the Nike swoosh. There's a lot of symbols that people know in this world. Yeah. The most profound and, and, the, and the most well known because it is the most shocking. It And if it's true, uh, it's the greatest thing. That the world's ever heard that God would become human and do this for us, so um, but it just when he said that, and then I read that in your book, I thought, oh man this this does provoke incredible wonder, like wow, did this happen
1: yeah, and i and I'm wanting people to to look at the cross, to look at it, and i and I mean a crucifix, I know you know we have the whole you know Catholic Orthodox Protestant divide and in in the Protestant world, for whatever reason, people have been a little bit hesitant. I mean, they kind of think oh, crucifix that belongs to the Catholic world. Protestants just have a empty cross an empty cross <laughs> which the problem with that is is it's it's reduced to more of an abstract symbol, and you you lose the storyline right, right? Uh, so what you might not know, Jim, because you just had the advanced reader copy, the actual book has sixteen full-color art images. Yeah. You I don't know if you noticed it. Well, I'm sure you did. In the book, I, I refer to art uh, regularly throughout the book. Yes. And every art, art image I refer to is reproduced in the book. So I think that really helps people.
0: That's going to be great. Yeah. I, I don't have that copy yet. So I'm excited because yeah. the And well, yeah. I mean, just to jump ahead. I mean, you mentioned the the Botticelli when i i went and did some research and i ended up buying it on some like a holy yeah, art well, that, well that's site. what
1: happens when <laughs> cuz i i knew that, that i'm describing these and i was able to convince the publisher god bless IVP to uh well said let's let's put these in here let's put these art images in the book and so you you don't have to go even look them up on the internet it's in yeah, the book yeah right
0: there that's great on on page 9 you have a paragraph that it's an indented, italicized paragraph that to me, I thought, well, this is the book. Like, this is a poetic. Yeah,
1: it really is the book.
0: So yes, I, I'm going to read it if that's okay. Sure. I should probably have you read it because you're the author, but I'm going to read
1: it anyway. All right.
0: Because I'm the host. I can do yes, that. Yes, yes. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Here's what you write It's the pinnacle of divine self disclosure, the eternal moment of forgiveness, divine solidarity with human suffering, the enduring model of discipleship. The supreme demonstration of divine love, the beauty that saves the world, the refounding of the world around an axis of love, the overthrow of the Satan, the shaming of the principalities and powers, the unmasking of mob violence, the condemnation of state violence, the expose of political power, the abolition of war, the sacrifice to end sacrificing, the great divide of humankind, the healing center of the cosmos, the death by which death is conquered, the lamb upon the throne, the tree of life recovered and revealed. And with this brief list of interpretations, I've come nowhere near exhausting the meaning of the cross, for indeed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is an inexhaustible revelation of who God is. Mic drop.
1: <laughs> well, and in some ways that is the book, and then what happens next is, well, let's talk a little bit more about it.
0: Right. And you do, and you dig deeply, and it's, oh, it's so good. I But I thought, there, that paragraph, that's almost one to put up on a poster or something. That, that covers, I need that up on the wall as a reminder. So, Brian, in, in chapters two and three, you caution, as you've done in your other books, and as I have tried to do in some of my writings, is to caution people not to look at the cross as the Father punishing the Son. Right. For our sins, which you point out is a pagan view, a pagan way to view the cross, really. But my question to you is, like, why is that still so pervasive? I mean, we we that divine punishment thing hangs around.
1: It really does, and we should note uh, for our listeners that this is something that hangs around in Western theology, particularly Reformed, but also within Catholicism to a limited extent, but it is not found at all in the Eastern Church. This metaphor, this interpretation of the cross as it is the place where God is punishing the Son, as if the Father were the source of the violence of the cross, um, this is something that begins with Anselm a thousand years ago and then comes into more or less its current form through Calvin and some other Reformed theologians. And I don't know why it has been so. Um, it's it's kind of like an invasive species of atonement theories, in that it drives out all others, and that's something that's problematic. Mm. You know, Jim, you and I are going to completely be on the same page here. That what is known as penal substitutionary atonement theory is an inadequate explanation of what's going on on Good Friday, and in fact, we would say more than inadequate. It's just wrong. Mm. Uh, but even if penal substitutionary atonement theory were an accurate depiction of what is happening at Golgotha, I would see it as problematic that it seems to eclipse all other meanings. Mm-hmm. And so people say, "Oh yeah, the cross. So, yeah, that's where God punished His Son uh, so that He could, you know, get rid of His wrath and forgive us." Okay, yeah, now yeah, we're all done with it. Next, next question, please. And it, it seems to Eclipse any other revelation from the cross. And that itself is deeply problematic.
0: Yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. It does, it does eclipse everything else. I was I was speaking out in California and it was a group of about a hundred pastors, and I was saying, you know, same thing as you you're saying. I was saying that penalty substitutionary atonement, PSA, some call it, it does exactly what you're saying. And boy, this pastor stood up and he—he he was mad at me.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> he was mad. Well, what's happened, Jim, is if you do arrive at the point where you think that's the gospel, then they—they they hear it as saying the cross is unnecessary, which is the, about the last thing in the world I'm right. saying. I didn't write an entire book on the cross because I think it's unnecessary. Right. Uh, I'm just saying the idea of po- that pitting the father against the son and making the father the source of the violence that is visited upon the son is you know poor theology and yeah. uh, and poor theology that has consequences and so yes i deal with that in the second and third chapters i think mostly the second chapter maybe a little bit in the third chapter too mm-hmm. but i didn't want to get stuck there and i knew i was going to have to deal with it because i've written about it in other books and I know it's kind of the, uh, it's it's you know a bit of a controversial area in atonement theology. So I, I wanted to kind of get it out of the way fairly quick, and yeah, and so that's that's what I was doing with that, uh, you know. And I I lean into uh, N.T. Wright a little bit because he's a heavyweight. Yeah, you know, he's he he's one to be taken seriously, and he's the one that gives us the phrase. He calls it a paganized soteriology. Yeah, and I think it's partly because we're we're so far removed from the actual practice of sacrifice that we don't know that that we don't understand that there is a profound distinction between the nature of Hebrew sacrifice and pagan sacrifice. Right, um, and he, the Hebrew, you know, ancient Hebrew religion, there's sacrifice, but there's not the idea that the animal is being punished. The the animal is providing the meal by which the covenant is ratified or renewed so that we gather around the table. Uh, So, for example, the very famous example of the Passover lamb, you know, there in Exodus 12, Mm -hmm. 13, 14. Um, Yes, the lamb is sacrificed and then provides the meal, the Passover meal that eventually becomes Christian communion, but the lamb isn't punished. The lamb is not being punished. Um, The the commandment to Israel was not, you shall take a lamb of the first year, a male, without blemish, and then you shall make a little crown of thorns and put it on its head, and you shall lash it, and you shall... (laughs) No, there isn't... The the idea of punishment isn't there. Uh, Rather, the idea of covenant is there.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely, and you know when people push back with me on that, I I will say, yes, Jesus was the substitutionary atonement. He is I, the Lamb of God. A
1: substitution, yeah. yeah.
0: But but when you have to do the the whole thing of the taking on the wrath
1: of the Father, it's the that, penal part, That's yeah, the it's, and it
0: separates the Trinity as if they're at odds with each other, right. and
1: it's just, it's uh, I don't like it at all. Yeah, you 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 have all kinds of problems with with good Trinitarian theology when you try to do PSA. Yeah. So right. I would say it like this that the cross is not where God punishes his son in order to forgive. Rather the cross is where God in Christ endures, you know, the cross as he forgives.
0: Yeah. That's so, so God so in Christ.
1: The the yeah. or or let's say it even this way. Um the cross is not where Jesus acts as an agent of change upon the Father. In fact, the Son never acts as an agent of change upon the Father. The Son reveals the Father. Right. This is one of the primary themes of the Gospel of John. It's all through the Gospel. I only do what I see my Father do. I only say what my Father says. The Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so on Good Friday, Jesus is not changing the Father, He's revealing the Father. Yes. And and I think most people, when they hear it, they go, yeah, that sounds like that's good theology. Yes, it is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, just to follow up on that, here's one of my favorites. You have so many great sentences, but here's one I love on page 35. You're right. As I gaze into the heart of God, I discover that there is no wrath, no malice, no threat, no vengeance, mm. only compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. When we look through the riven side of Christ into the heart of God. Now that's quite a sentence right there. Let me do that again. When we look through the riven side of Christ into the heart of God, we gaze upon a vast cosmos filled with galaxies of grace. Amen. Preach it.
1: Amen. Well, I, I like that sentence too. I like hearing that. Thank you. That was, praise the Lord for that one. Yes.
0: And there is there is forgiveness. You know, I, I always love when I read an author and it affirms my own views. But I mean, you talk about how Christ on the cross was God's act of forgiveness for all people, for all sins, for all time, and I the particular and the universal. And that's something I, I think is profound. Is Yeah. To think so that... so
1: we're, we're again back to the invasive species of PSA as an atonement theory, and that when I see the problems with it and say, no, this is this is inadequate. This is in fact, I think, false, then people think, oh, so B Z doesn't believe that the cross saves us, and he doesn't believe the cross is necessary, and he doesn't believe the cross is where we're saved. No, that's not at all true. Right. And and that's why, that's part of why I'm writing this whole book. Say, look, there is a way to speak. Of the cross as where our sins are forgiven without maligning the character of the Father. Yes,
0: exactly. Exactly. Well, that's a beautiful segue, Brian. Right. <laughs> Chapter four about the Odyssey, because as you say in the book, it's probably the most challenging thing for our faith. You know, how can an all good, all powerful God allow the incredible mm-hmm. evil and suffering that we have in this world? And um I have to admit this chapter was pretty hard to read because you you lean in pretty hard into the evil. You quote, you know, Ellie Wiesel and Dostoevsky and, and Karamazov. And I you know, you, you don't uh uh you don't leave much to the imagination. I mean you get Well, to, there's
1: no sense in trying to win a victory against a straw man. Might yeah, as well let you that's know true. the champion take the field.
0: Yeah. And and boom, you do. Uh but then you write, I love this. God does not exempt himself from the experience of the suffering, but fully shares with us in Christ. The only theodicy I know is that God has hung, suffered, and died upon the gallows. And to me, that's that's incredible because, you know, we we, we do, we go to Job, you say, don't go to Job, it's not actually helpful for theodicy. But when we we are confronted with how can an all-good, all-powerful God allow such suffering, boy I, th- I think the cross is the only place to go it's- yeah
1: I mean, if, I, if I were to write a book on theodicy which I, I I pray that somebody would talk me out of it if I, I ever, ever <laughs> tried to <laughs> that's such a challenging subject but I mean you have I think I think there's I think Christian theodicy has three movements to it At the very beginning I think at some point you have to make an appeal to free will that this is what opens the door for the possibility of temporal evil. Yeah. Is that, that the, the radical freedom necessary for us to be authentic beings opens the door for all things, including evil. And then if you, the third movement at the very end would be eschatological, that we confess that in the end, God will make all things new, all things will be reconciled, all things will be healed. Uh, The book of Revelation speaks of, you know, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more death. But in between the opening of the door for the potential of suffering and pain and evil through free will and the final healing of all things stands the cross. And the cross is it's where the healing begins but it also and this is the this is what i lean into in this chapter it is God in Christ standing in solidarity with all who suffer i mean you read some of that passage that god does yeah. not exempt himself that that if there is temporal suffering i mean i say i like to add the word temporal because i don't think it, it's not telling the whole of the human story it's not telling this is, this is our fate and we can't go beyond that, but, but in temporal suffering it can be very horrific, very real, very painful. Well, God is with us in that. He has suffered with us. He has been unjustly condemned, tortured, crucified, and that has to mean something.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, for me personally, and I know a lot of listeners know my story, I think you do as well, Brian, you know, when my wife and I lost our, mm-hmm. our daughter Madeline when she was two and, but just in the process of the trial of that, which, which I was, you know, saying, God, how can you, I mean, I'm one of your guys, come on, what's, yeah. what are you doing here? And, um, but, but when I read Balthazar's discourse on Holy Saturday, that Christ experienced the depths of
1: separation
0: from God. That was the first time in my own life personally, because that was my theodicy. That was the only time that I felt any kind of comfort was to think, Jesus has felt this. Jesus has, he has, what I'm feeling now, he's felt it even more. So that solidarity which is a part of because you as you say, it's not just the it's not just Good Friday, but it's Holy Saturday and Sunday, like mm-hmm. you can't separate those three movements um, and for me personally, that I mean, because people you know Christians, they say all these things trying to cheer you up or whatever yeah. you know, trying to encourage you, but really, it was Balthazar's discourse on Holy Saturday, and went, okay, now,
1: which you know Balthazar got that from Adrian von Speyer, yeah, who was a Christian mystic and so you have you have Hans Urs von Balthasar, one of the great academic theologians ever you know? yes I mean, and and yet i I like the fact that he was also open to receiving a word from mystics who are not doing their work in the capacity of academic theology but their own their own direct experience in prayer mm-hmm i I don't bring that out in the book, by the way, but I just thought I thought you might find that interesting.
0: No, I do. Yeah, yeah, because he got Balthasar got a little criticized for for you know having confidence in her. Right? You know, it's like
1: well, yeah, and and the academy is often nervous about that sort of stuff. But if we're going to in any way be true to scripture, we have to recognize that mystical experiences are. Set forth as entirely normative in scripture mm-hmm. now, yes, it can be problematic, and everything has to be discerned. I get all of that and and I'm not advocating for fanaticism yet, if you just completely shut the door and say no w- w- there's nothing to be gained from a from the mystics or your own mystical experience, well, I think you've just pretty much just shut the door on the experience of God
0: right exactly no i, I and Yeah, my life as a Christ follower has been marked by that. I mean, it's daily for me. I'm, I I, I talk to, he walks with me and talks with me. And I'm, well,
1: that's why I began this whole conversation by saying, and and I, and I want to sort of, I want to mute it. I don't want to, I don't want to trumpet it. I don't want to be too over the top with it. But where does this, where it, what, what is the conception point of this book? Yeah. You're in sitting pain. in a chapel <laughs> in a Catholic monastery in Ronson's Valles, Spain, sensing the spirit say, enter every church you can, find the crucifix, pay attention to it, ask this question, what does this mean? And don't be too quick to give an answer. Mm-hmm.
0: So and I'm that, glad that the spirit led you to that. With, yeah.
1: You can call that a mystical experience, you know, the yeah. hearing the voice of the Lord.
0: Yes. And I'm glad that you uh, obeyed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah chapter five is about discipleship and you quote bonhoeffer who talked about you know against cheap grace and uh and my goodness you uh, hidden life now i've got to watch it i watched the trailer oh Holy no g-
1: you haven't watched it no
0: you watched it 20 times you said Jim, in the chapter Jim, i am i'm excited Jim,
1: listen, listen to me watch it i know I'm and, and just and and let me tell you a little more uh i did a podcast with the catholic priest who was the consultant for mm. Terrence Malick on this film. He knew the family. Wow. He actually knew the family. And he says, they got that movie right. Mm. He said, down, down to even how the, the two primary characters looked. And he said mm. that, that they looked like them. And uh, it's such a beautiful. You're gonna love this. I can't wait. Oh, I'm, yeah. I can't wait. You have to text me after okay. you watched it and tell me what you thought. You got it. You got it. It's a long movie, and it's you know it's Terrence Malick, so it's it's moving slowly. It's one of the most gorgeous, beautiful movies you'll ever see. As far as how, yeah, it just, oh just the trailer goodness. was yeah. So oh, it's a so hidden
0: good. life. We'll have to just rec- you know a hidden life. With Terrence Malick that film is one that we want to encourage people to see. I haven't seen it, but I trust you, Brian. I saw the trailer, and it's phenomenal. Again, the book we're talking about today is "The Wood Between the Worlds." Brian Zahn, my guest. Brian, this book is so phenomenal, and you you got Balthazar and Coltrane and Beekner, and it just goes on and on. All my all my faves, and I love Chapter Six. a love Supreme. It's and and Coltrane when he when he just said, "This is it." Like, yeah, what Nunc Dimittis or whatever it is, the Latin. Like, I can't, I got nothing else. This that that song. Um, I've listened to that so many times. Yeah. And the cross is the supreme love. And gosh. And then you talk about the transcendentals in chapter seven and mm-hmm. and beauty, goodness, and truth has really been central in my own formation as well. So here okay, I'll I'll ask a question. I've been I'm I'm gonna be asking this year to to authors on on the podcast. It's a weird question. But do you have a favorite chapter or section or
1: mm, that is a great question. From the book? Um I'm looking at the table of contents right now, and I I like that. I like that you asked me this question. I don't know that I have an answer. I can, I think, I, I I'll tell you a serious contender would be chapter ten, one ring to rule them all. Mm-hmm. Working with Tolkien. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's the best chapter. I I enjoyed writing that chapter a lot. Say more about that. Um. Well, I just, I've, my appreciation for Tolkien and Lewis has been growing. You know, I thought, you know, I read them as, you know, as a youth, teens, 20s. And then I thought, oh, yeah, okay. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Inklings, I get it. Yeah, great (laughs) stuff. I'm done with that. And I, you know, and then decades later now, (laughs) here in my 60s, I'm coming back to them and going, wait a minute, how did I ever think I even understood what they were doing <laughs> when I was 21 years old? And uh, I just see the, the profundity of their work, and uh, especially Tolkien with Lord of the Rings, which you can read on so many levels, and, and it's easy enough just to see it as a great fantasy tale, and so it is. But also, it is a profoundly Christian story, and really? this is, you know, Tolkien's own. You can see in his correspondence, he tells people, "I'm writing a profoundly Christian story." So, but I also think it speaks to the time in which. We, I don't want to give it away. I don't want to spend all of our time on chapter ten here, but the cross is the very opposite of the ring of power, or we'll say the sword of Caesar. That is the kind of power that. The devil offers Jesus in the wilderness temptation that Jesus refuses because he see, he understands that would be tantamount to bowing down to the devil. Um, we could we could speak of it metaphorically as the sword of Caesar, or you know now that now that we live after Tolkien, we can speak of it as the ring of power. And one of the recurring themes throughout the Lord of the Rings is the inability of anyone to to have the ring of power for any length of time without it corrupting them and so the most powerful people like you know like like Gandalf and Aragorn and and uh, uh, the Lady of the wood why can't I think of her Gladriel uh, they won't even touch it they won't him. touch it they, I'm not even going to touch it and and Gandalf makes the point he says look the way of the ring to me would be in a a desire to do good, but I know it would corrupt me, Mm -hmm. and my power would become wicked. The only people that can maybe bear it are uh, the humble hobbits, and even Frodo in the end couldn't willingly relinquish it, and you had to have the intervention of providence through Gollum. Mm -hmm. The only person in the whole narrative who ever willingly relinquishes it is Samwise Gamgee, and that's why he's the true hero, but he's also the most humble. He's just not full of himself. Mm-hmm. You know, He's a gardener. He knows he's a gardener. He's not trying to be a wizard. He's not trying to rule the world. <laughs> and uh, our listeners might be thinking, I thought this was a book on the cross, and now you're going all Lord of the Rings on us. <laughs> well, I, I want you to kind of trust me that it's actually right, it stays right in the center of all of that, that the cross is the critique of that kind of power. Right. And once the church gets seduced by whether you want to say Caesar's sword, or you want to say the ring of power. Once we get c- c- seduced by the lure of political power, uh, it always has a corrupting influence. You'd think we'd have figured that out by now, but apparently we haven't. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. And I and I particularly have it out a little bit for uh, Metropolitan Kirill, the mm. head of the Russian Orthodox Church, because. He deserves it. Mm. By the way, I just spoke at the Institute for Studies in Eastern Christianity mm. at Union Seminary, and I was the only non-orthodox speaker. <laughs> mm. And they they asked they invited me because they wanted me to speak to this issue. They mm. wanted the the. the um, Symposium was on war and violence and peace, and and they wanted me to go ahead and bring a critique of Karel. And I said, "Well, I can do that." Mm. And I did. Well, well, I have. So I don't know. Is that my favorite? I don't know if that's my favorite chapter. I I enjoyed writing it because I got to work with Tolkien. Yeah, I'm looking here. You know what? There's also the theopoetics of the cross at the very end. Yeah, the world on the far side of the wood. Yeah, that might be my favorite. Yeah, I I I have a. I, that was the last thing I wrote. I mean, the, the chapters are arranged almost entirely in the order I wrote them. I think one thing got moved around, but, Mm. but that literally was the last thing I wrote and I wrote it in one go. Mm. And uh, here I'm at my house and, and um, in my backyard, there's this, there's this enormous sycamore tree that we, we estimate is probably close to 300 years old. Wow. And it's, and it, it is huge. And so it's so big that on its largest branch, we have a porch swing that hangs from it <laughs> mm. wow. and I sat in that porch swing and wrote that poem that begins with three trillion trees mm-hmm. and uh that might that might be my favorite, who knows,
0: yeah, yeah, well, especially how it came to you that's yeah, yeah, that one that one landed on you sounds like that's so good. Well, all right, one last question. What do you hope people will take away from the book?
1: That the cross has an infinite number of meanings, and we can't ever be done with it. We can't say, oh, I I know what the cross is about. It's about thus and so, and therefore I don't really have to think about it much anymore. Mm. I want them to see it as a place of infinite possibilities of revelation concerning who God is, and God is love, and God is good, and God is beauty. And we can see that in the cross.
0: There's another mic drop right there. BZ, my friend, you've done it again. Thank you for this book. Thank you for your time today. Excited to see you in September at the Apprentice Gathering. Like I said at the beginning, the talk you gave last time at the Apprentice Gathering was by many people's estimation, one of the best talks, if not the best talk, given at the Apprentice Gathering. That talk was phenomenal. I still think about that. So no pressure, but you yeah. <laughs> you, you got to come back and follow that. All but right. I'm sure it, it will be phenomenal. And uh, thank you, friend, for this book and all your work. And uh, can't wait to see you soon.
1: All right. Thank you. Blessings.
0: I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things About podcast, you can do so on our website, apprenticeinstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind, your answer will be, things above.